Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Greetings and welcome to Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen. And I am your other host, Ash Versus, and we are joined today by a man without whom this podcast would probably not have had any reason to exist, and whose blessing and acknowledgement gave us a warm, fuzzy feeling all over. He is someone who in the past year has twice said he was not going to do any more podcasts about Games Master, and yet has agreed to speak to us anyway, like the cool uncle that takes you to Alton Towers, and despite it being really late in the day and everyone being very tired, still agrees to one more spin on the teacups and a cheeky wimpy on the way home, Dominic Diamond. That was a Games Master-esque introduction there, Ash. Bravo, bravo. (laughs) Pulling back the curtain, we've got kind of a note sheet to refer to, and I started to write a bit of the introduction, and I just left a note for Luke going, I'll fix this later. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was good. In fact, it was so good. I'm not even going to pick you up upon the fact you said probably without whom this podcast. Probably. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) I, you know, they they could have they could have started the show with uh, Terry Christian. That's true. That is true. Yes. Yeah. Or they could have leapt straight to Dexter Fletcher. Very interesting choice, actually. I know that. Um, I know you haven't technically asked me a question yet, but um, I know that because I found this out in the book that the other people they auditioned for the word at the time I auditioned, which led to me eventually getting Gavis Master, included people like Carolina Hearn was one of them. And I suddenly really? thought, yeah, and um, oh, the names, other names escape me now. But there was quite a lot of kind of uh, comedians then, I guess, any of any number of whom could have been suggested to Hewland International for Games Master. So maybe you might have had Carolina Hearn. That would have been very different. Aww. That would have been cool. Would have been. I loved, I loved Carolina Hearn as so well. Massive, massive fan of her work. 
Yeah. She's dead. She's dead, isn't she? Yeah, yeah she is. is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sad yeah. that one. Yeah, very. Anyway, <laughs> what a downbeat start. So, Kickstarter. <laughs> I'm, I'm sat here going, don't make a Bob Hoskins joke. Don't make a Bob Hoskins joke. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so bad. I would imagine there's so many people listen, listen to the podcast over all these episodes. I've been like, yes, this is the one where Dominic died. Second one after the Kickstarter uh, announcement. But this is the first proper one, Dominic Diamonds. <laughs> Come on. Oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be so much fun. What? We're mourning the death of Carolina Hearn? What? That's not where I wanted to be guided in this podcast. I apologize. When you did the Retro Gaming Hour podcast, I remember like seething with jealousy, being like, damn it, they got there but to Dominic before we did. I'm so <laughs> jealous of them. And now I, I'm glad that we waited until this point because we got that introduction. They, they got a standard <laughs> intro. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So sorry about that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit downbeat today because I'm tired because um, the, the kids just got a new cat. And it's uh, it's it, it's caused a bit of upheaval to the house. It's got um and uh, and Ash knows this because I put it on Twitter. My kids yesterday decided to spend one hundred and sixty dollars on a cat with no teeth and one ear, and it's it's a pretty fucked up cat. And so it's like it's in my it's in my room just now, and I'm not allowed into my own room because of it. And it's uh, so it's really annoying me because uh, I don't like pets. But it's it's one step up from the last pet. That they- this is a true story. I couldn't even tweet about this. So um, so my, my kids were looking for a second cat. So they had this cat. It was all set up and they kept getting these emails. Is your house going to be okay for this cat? Oh, yeah, our house is going to be fine. You know, we've got one cat already and, you know, we've got this in place and that in place. Okay, fine. And the days get closer and closer until we take possession of the cat and uh and my daughters are like, uh, yeah, okay, it's all good. And the person emails, you, you're completely sure you want this cat? Yeah, we want this cat. We want this cat. Definitely. Okay. And it comes to the night before and the owner says, you have read all the information about the cat. And my kids say yes. And they hadn't. It turns out the cat had AIDS. <laughs> and oh, um, yeah so uh, my, my my kids in their rush to get another pet had not read all the information and it, apparently it was judged in the end that we were not a suitable house for a cat with AIDS so you know <laughs> t- 2021 the hits keep coming you know <laughs> crikey I mean, you, you'd you'd tease that off, Mike. That we were you were get you were like, I'll save yeah. this for the podcast. We'll do this at the future. I did not see that coming. No, no, neither did, neither did my daughters. Um, so there you go. So there's another nice bit of exclusive content for you. Uh, two bits of exclusive content: Carolina Hearn and AIDS Cat. And we haven't even started talking about the show yet. That's what I give you guys. <laughs> that 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 that's that's in return for the great work you've done. How did a cat with no teeth and one ear end up costing one hundred and sixty dollars? And I, part of me is like, why am I even asking this question? But I well, d- makes you wonder how much it would have cost if I had two ears and teeth. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, actually, we should we talk about the Kickstarter then? I'll, I'll, I'll pass to you first with the first question. <laughs> Thanks. Under the bus I go. I feel like I'm facing Dominic Cummings at the moment. Uh, I was going to say, I I will be the Dominic Cummings to your Boris Johnson in this scenario. uh, So, the campaign launched on March 25th, uh, same day we dropped our super secret interview we did with you. To say it was successful is a slight understatement because you were 100% funded in just over 24 hours. Yes. I mean, if you take into account the lag of social media... I think it's fair to call it around 24 hours. I, I think the five minutes that it takes people to scroll through Twitter or like log into Kickstarter 
that, yeah. that compensates for it. Uh, I'm very proud because I was back a number one. Oh, well done. I was sat there refreshing at 11.59, waiting <laughs> for it to go live. Excellent. I was so desperate. Yeah, you, you got my money quick. It ended at over £100,000 and now is on track for a November launch. You'd obviously been working for some time on the book in the background and kind of keeping it fairly secret. How did it feel to be able to talk about it more publicly and be able to promote it and actually get the existence of this tome out there? Um, I don't know. I was kind of, I, I, I had a mixture of excitement and dread about it because, you know, one never really knows how much people really care about things. You know, it's, it's like, it's like my marriage. My wife says she cares, but does she remember an anniversary? No. So people say they love Games Master and it's like, okay, great. You've tweeted that you love Games Master. You've sent me a message. Oh, blah, blah, blah. But you know, when it comes to putting your hands in your pocket, which is the only true um, measurement of love, uh, in this day and age, uh, you know, you, you never really know. So I was excited about it, but I was also terrified because I thought, you know, th this is the, you know, still my legacy to the broadcasting world, regardless of, you know, how much people have enjoyed, you know, things I've done in Canada or whatnot. And if if it is a disaster, it will be a very public disaster, a very humiliating disaster. So the closer we got, I, I actually kept wanting to delay it. I actually really wanted to delay it by another week because I got cold feet. I, I wasn't excited. I was more scared. But that first 24 hours was absolutely incredible. Uh, and I think you're right. It's a really good point, uh, Ash. You are on fire in this pod. I just want to say that now. <laughs> if it's like a little competition, who's doing the best? You know, Ash or Luke, you're fucking way ahead at this point, yeah. son. That's um, what it always, always happens on this show. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so um so you're right i think it, yeah officially it was like 24 hours and five minutes but when you think maybe three pips they're still using dial up then yeah it would be you know that would be 24 hours so it, it was amazing and it was horribly exhilarating to just watch to, to go on the kickstarter page and just see the numbers going up and up and up and I felt really guilty because it's just cash going up and up and up and it but it was almost like that the the last uh, second last scene in trading places when all that stuff the stock's going up and up and up and I realized this is what it's like for people who bought stock in game <laughs> you know and, uh, and so it was quite uh, it was quite quite intoxicating and exciting that first 24 hours I'm not sure I enjoyed the rest of the campaign as much because that was just, you know, interview after interview after interview after interview, and I, I didn't enjoy that. But um, but that first 24 hours was absolutely incredible. 45 grand was like a big lofty goal to, to start with. But it's like hit it within that 24-hour period and then doubled it and then some. Were you like surprised by going over 100? Were you surprised by the reaction, the, so, the overwhelmingly positive reaction to it? Uh, yeah, I thought I thought it was one of the people say with Kickstarter, people who really want to get it on the first day. So that's like the, the, the majority of your money. But I think because word spread of it, you know, and I started doing things like Richard Herring's podcast and everything and a lot of these things with big audiences. So it kind of took on an extra life of its own, really. Um, and it was it was a good example of, of what they call... Um, something spreading virally. I think it's the first time I've ever been involved in some kind of viral thing since the internet was invented. So yeah, it took a lot of work from me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm very happy to uh, 
to credit uh, editor Jack Templeton, without whom the book would not have existed at all. Um, uh, and he did an incredible job on it. And Darren, the publisher, made it look fantastic. But they basically got us, you know, the three of us together got us through that 45,000. I got us the rest, pretty much single-handedly, flogging myself, interview after interview. Uh, so, so, yeah, they did a bit. And then I took over and <laughs> steered it home by shamelessly prostituting myself to any fucker with a microphone and a computer. You you started with us. I mean, I know. you know, the the bar was pretty low to begin with. And then <laughs> You got me at my most enthusiastic though. You were lucky. You got you got me before I was having to fake the smile. That's what you do. You start really at the bottom with us, because the only way is up after that. Like he's, you don't want to start with herring because anything after that is just a massive downgrade. <laughs> herring was terrifying. I, I was absolutely terrified when I did the Richard Herring's podcast because I, I'd seen, you know, what he's done to uh, other guests. And and this is actually, I think this is quite relevant to Games Master. So I know that I know that Richard is is, is a roasting type comedian, and that he you know he likes to slag people off, and that's fair enough. Um, but I, I I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to match him dig for dig if he does that. But he was very warm and cuddly because he genuinely loved Games Master. He loved appearing on it. Um, he loved the show, and so I was uh, I was very lucky that his love for the show overrode any desire he had to uh, get one up on, on a guest. <laughs> so that was a lovely experience. Second loveliest podcast I did after you guys. <laughs> Thanks, mate. You're welcome. How, how did he do on the introduction, though? Actually, he was, he was, his introduction was, because what he does is that in his podcast, he picks one of the more obscure things about his guest to introduce them. So uh, it was quite funny. So he says, please welcome my guest, the star of David Icke and the Orphans of Jesus, which was the, um, the comedy uh, group I had with Simon Pegg and David Williams at Bristol University. So that was his introduction. Please welcome. Welcome the star of David Icke and the Office of Jesus, Dominic Diamond. So yeah, that was quite an interesting one. But that's that's kind of more of a shtick. So I mean, I'll be honest. I think I ended up doing that when we interviewed uh, Paul Rose, uh, Mr. Right. Biffo does Digitizer, yeah. and I was just looking through his various bibliography and achievements, and he's the only person to manage to get a certain four-letter word beginning with the letter C onto primetime BBC television when he wrote an episode of EastEnders uh, where really? Dirty Den says the word constable. And he wrote it in such a way that if you read it correctly... Wow, that's very clever. And, Good for him. And uh, Leslie Grantham, he read it exactly as it was written. And so wow. technically, he managed to get pre-Watershed four-letter word. That's exceptional work. I mean, we had that word after Watershed and bleeped on the Games Master Gore special. In the video, we had it unbleeped, if I remember correctly. But yes, yeah. that is in the, uh, in the famous um, outtake that they have in that of me on, on one occasion when I got a, it was funny enough in series four, when I got a line wrong, piss, piss, shit, cunt, motherfucker was my exact <laughs> quote. I think, think if I remember correctly. Uh, so yeah, we had it, but it was bleeped out. So well done, Mr. Biffle. Good job. So having gone through the process of writing the book and then going back on the kind of the interview trail, did you find yourself approaching some subjects differently than you would have before writing the book? Yeah, very much so. Um, a few in particular, I think uh, the general level of my uh, work was uh, not nearly as good as I, I thought it was at the time. I think, uh, fun, and, and, and I think the show in itself is not actually as good 
as I thought it was at the time, in particular Series 4. I think Series 4 is an absolute mess. It really is. It's an absolute, especially the first uh, half a dozen episodes are a technical shit show. And I didn't realise that until I watched them back. I mean, I can't watch Series 2. I, I genuinely cannot watch Series 2. I hate it so much, passionately, which is, uh, which is a shame because that's, you know, that's the iconic series out of all of them, really, uh, you know, in terms of images of the show. Uh, I also, I, I mean, I completely re-reviewed my opinion of uh, Mr. Dexter Fletcher once I found out the extent of the just catastrophe that was going on behind the scenes in Series 3 that was nothing to do with him. And this poor guy was just kind of shoved in front of the camera and had to carry the can as the face of the show. So yeah, things like that. I think that was yeah that 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 was things that I I kind of uh, rebooted in my in my memory. I'm just going to jump slightly ahead in the questions that we had because we were going to save this when we were talking about series four. Because like the last time we interviewed you, your quote was season four is raw, unadulterated me, and I think season four is pretty as a result <laughs> and uh, we we've done the first episode we've we recorded the first episode of series four and we re both really really enjoyed it actually i think we both scored it very very highly I, I loved the first episode but like was there any particular reason why you think the series four is a quote unquote quite shit uh, and do you have like regrets about it um i think there, there was two there was two reasons was that uh it was a brand new team and Hewland, uh, Jane Hewland was always very, very good at giving people jobs that they didn't have experience for uh, based on a hunch that she felt the talent that they had and they they delivered, you know, going back to series one. You know, Cameron McAllister and Adam Wood, the uh, director and producer, were, you know, they'd never directed or produced anything of that scale before. And so when it came to uh, Steve Wright, the director, uh, Johnny Finch, the producer, I mean, again, they'd never done anything like that. And even Drogo, Drogo Michi, art director, he'd done pop videos and things like that with Steve, but they'd never done something like that. And I think that I really should have been more of the, the kind of leader of them. I should have been more of a kind of, not a boss, but I, I should have been more kind of present. I was just like, hey, I'm back. I like these guys. These guys are really funny and they're cool and I get on great with them. I'll let them get on with it um, because I was doing, I, you know, at that point, I, you know, sports call on BBC Radio 5 Live I was doing was like the most popular phone in on the radio at the time. So I was, and I just was doing fantasy football for the BBC as well. So, um, you know, I was distracted by a lot of other stuff. So yeah, I probably should have kept more of an eye on it, uh, but I didn't. And I mean, needless to say, all those people, Johnny and Steve and everyone, ended up. I mean, just doing the most phenomenal work from series five onwards. But they, um, I mean, Johnny in particular is the <laughs> Johnny stuff in the book is absolutely brilliant because uh, Johnny is the most witheringly um, deprecating and self-deprecating person of all time. He will he will shoot everyone in the front in the most eloquent terms, and he's the first person to admit that his work on series four was was not what it was on on later series. So, and the other thing as well about series four is that. It was so much fun that I, I don't think that we really kind of paid attention. We were just so happy to be in each other's company. I was so happy to be back. I was so happy to finally have a team behind the show that I, I, I felt were connected with my vision of the show 
were more like me. And there was just so many laughs that I think we just didn't really pay attention. Now, that said, there are things that are incredible. I think it's still the best set that we had on any show. Uh, and it was, uh, I mean, just incredible what Drogo Michi did. I mean, building the river sticks is quite an achievement, I think. Uh, and and also the book goes into details about how we nearly collapsed that whole church uh, in uh, with the making of the river sticks. It really did. We nearly destroyed a listed building in London. And and things like, you know, what the, the wee guys, the dwarfs, midgets, I don't know what the correct word is these days we're supposed to say. Uh, little people. I'm glad you bring that up, Luke, because I think that is supposed to be the politically correct term as little people. But to me, that sounds like the most derogatory um, thing you could say, because some of these people are giants in some ways, you know, when yeah. you, in the terms of their personality and their artistic contribution. I think little people is is, is the most, <laughs> I, I mean, listen, you know, obviously I don't know. I've never walked a mile in there little shoes but if it was me i would far rather be called a dwarf than a little person but that's just me i i, I don't know but yeah that, that's all i've been that's all i've been told i work in the i work in the world of wrestling so like <laughs> in the world of wrestling they're midgets like that is what like that is what wrestling calls yes because that's the carny term it that's is the carny term for it yeah and do you know luke that i once um uh, was genuinely hurt by a midget wrestler on radio in Nova Scotia. <laughs> it's another one of these wonderful, um, wonderful things that have happened to me in my life. Was on my my first radio job in Canada, right at the bottom of the rung as a completely unknown forty uh, year old presenter on CKBW Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. And we had he was called Beautiful Bobby, and he was a midget wrestler. Came on with another wrestler, full size, and uh, they were doing an exhibition fight in the, the little town of Bridgewater. And so we had this thing. I was like, right here's this is going to be the joke on air, right? I'm going to take you on, going to have a fight with you, Beautiful Bobby, on air, right? And so we did this mucking about, and we're getting photographs, and he put me in a chokehold. Quite hard to do, but just just managed to get his wee arms around there, and uh, and he was strong, right? And it was really, and I'm tapping around, okay, okay, and he's keep choking because obviously he's a professional, you know, he's a professional, and he's you know he's he, he's he's doing his job very well, a little bit too well, and I could actually feel myself blacking out, and I'm like, fuck, come on, beautiful Bobby, <laughs> and I can't swear because it's live on the radio, but luckily, um, I, I kind of just he he he. I grabbed one of his little arms and I pulled it off. Uh, pulled it off. We're gonna say, <laughs> not him. And, um, uh, and yeah, luckily, I, I, you know, I, I was okay in the end because he. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying I would have died, but what a <laughs> death! Choked to death by a midget wrestler on the smallest radio station in Canada. Whatever happened to Dominic Diamond? <laughs> That would have been a great segment of the Channel 4 Top 100 series, you know. <laughs> top top 100 kind of TV shows of the 90s. It gets the Games Master. Whatever happened to Dominic Diamond? Yeah. Well, funny story. <laughs> yeah. Although I will say that behaviour from a wrestler, it happens a little bit less with the current generation, but the whole, okay, we know how to work. We know how to make the moves look bad, but not hurt. And then occasionally when they're working with someone that's not in the business, They'll put it on for real mm. because there's still that whole idea that sometimes they like to protect the fact that obviously it doesn't really hurt. And so you may have you may have been on the receiving end of that. Are you trying to say that they don't fight genuinely in wrestling? <laughs> 
How very dare you? How very <laughs> dare you? You know, for me, it's as, it's always been as as realistic and genuine as Mortal Kombat. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite is my mother, like, um, has no time for American wrestling. And she'll go, you know, it's all fake, don't you? Not real, like the British world of sport. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) dear. Yeah, not like giant haystacks and Big Daddy and Rollerball Rocco. They were going at it for real. I just, I don't have it in me to break her heart, really. I just don't have it. You actually had a British wrestling legend, Kendo Nakasaki, on the first series of Games Master. That's right. Like before, like, because you had like Hacksaw Jim Duggan and uh, Randy Savage from the WWF, and then yeah. the um, the American Males. But Kendo Nagasaki is the one. Like, I was I was mentioning the the magazine editor that we've got, and I was like, do you know that Kendo Nagasaki was on Games Master once? And he was like, no. And I was like, oh, here it is. You've got to watch this. Yeah, and and never ever broke character. Even even off offset, which was quite amazing because I mean I grew up with with that golden era of British wrestling and uh, and I was like oh I'm finally going to see the guy behind the mask of Kendo Nagasaki but no not only did he keep it on like when I was uh, talking to him all right Kendo thanks so much for coming on the show and 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 here's what we, he just wouldn't talk back he would not talk back one word and I I thought that was pretty cool that was actually really cool. <laughs> He he is a dude that lives. He lives the gimmick. He's lived it mm-hmm. so long that it's all he really knows how to do at this point. Yeah. In in some ways it's admirable, but in other ways it's like, wow, you've lived that long being someone else that that's all you can be. Yeah, but you can still nip out for a pint of milk without getting hassled, presumably <laughs> if he takes it off. I don't know because apparently he's 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 got a full skull tattoo. Get out of here. No, I'm, I'm, am I remembering this I think, right? I Luke? think you're right. I think you might yeah, be right yeah. with that one, yeah. Because he did eventually start appearing without the mask, but like he's got a full tattoo on the top of his head and stuff. So unless he wears a cap, <laughs> he's probably still going to get hassled. Yeah. 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 Just slightly too visible tattoos. I'm not into that. Speaking of visible tattoos, one of the uh, the perks on there was the <laughs> <course>. peacemaker <laughs> with, with, with Mr. Dave Ferry. Great uh, seg. No Can up. I just say, look, you've now edged ahead of Ash. That's a brilliant seg. That really is. That's for all pro. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, were you surprised that no one picked that one up? No. This is a stupid amount of money. <laughs> Who the hell would pay that amount of money to, to, to meet up with Dave Perry? <laughs> <laughs> And you. It wasn't just Dave. Yeah, but they could pay a lot less for that to be up with me, couldn't they? You know? Um, so, uh, I, you know what? I thought, I was in two minds. I, I thought it was, you know, joking aside, it would be a lovely kind of finish to the whole thing. It would be a nice little kind of upbeat end to it all, with me and Dave burying the hatchet once and for all. And, but you know... You know that if someone had bought it, Dave Perry would have gone, well, there you go. I was the star of the Kickstarter, you know? <laughs> like, obviously, you know, it's because of me. That's how that... So part of me was actually quite pleased that it did that the, that the only Kickstarter reward that involved Dave Perry was met with a, with a giant wall of indifference. I'm sorry. That's the bad 90s dominant cover. Go down. Be, be gone, foul demon. Return to the place whence thou came. <laughs> Terrifyingly, some of our listeners on our Discord were just like, could we club together and get this for the podcast? And I'm sat there going, fucking no. No, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, it would have been interesting that day. Would, but we'll never know. We'll never know. 
So you mentioned that obviously they could have spent all that money to meet Dave Perry. They could speak. They could meet you for a lot less. Yeah. And in fact, at least one person has, which means you will be coming back to the UK. Yes. I will, yes, because someone paid, again, a quite ludicrous amount of money to uh, have me meet them at the old uh, pumping station that we shot Series 2 at. We'll have a wee look, we'll have a wee tour, we'll get selfies outside smoking cigarettes like we used to do during filming breaks, and then we will go to uh, Kempton Racing, hopefully, if it's still open. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and I'll put some money on the uh, most innuendo-esque horse running that day, and we'll have a pint together and uh, then the person will probably kill me and wear my skin as a human mask. Like Alan Partridge. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I'm very aware of that Alan Partridge scene with that guy in his room. See you next week, then. We'll have that pint. Yep. Go see my brother. In no way, you big spastic. You're a mentalist. Um, but uh, no, I'm sure the guy who got it's a lovely fella and or woman. Wouldn't it be weird if it was Wakefield? Whoa. I think that would be more scary. I'd be like, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> you didn't realize this was a joke. You think Kirk Ewing was a real priest. Um, and, uh, so, uh, no, I'm sure that'll be, uh, be fascinating. It'll be a, be a great day. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, for, for me, the, um, the winner and my five bodyguards. Well, you know, if you need any extra bodyguards on the day, there's two relatively well-abled beings here that are happy to come along in black suits and sunglasses and look intimidating. I, and I would like to get at least one... Dwarf midget little person as well, just, you know, because I think that's it's a nice little touch. I'll, I'll put some feelers out. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, I'll speak to my wrestling friends. They'll know yes. some. <laughs> but when I saw that that had gone, that at least one person had picked up that, I did immediately think, oh, that's lovely, because, of course, it means you'll get to see some of your family while you're over, I would hope. Yeah, unless they've died from COVID. Um, fingers crossed. But there, there, is, there is that. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's nice that I'll be able to come over I mean, I was supposed to be over there anyway by this point. We were all supposed to have moved back to the UK, but COVID kind of put the kibosh into that. So, yeah, it'll be nice. I mean, I say it'll be nice to come back over, but no, nobody really, really has nice things to say about, about the United Kingdom these days. I don't ever open Twitter and have people say, oh, my God, this country's fantastic. Wait and you hear what the government did today. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> See, that's what I was going to ask is I knew, obviously, that a full-time return was on the cards last year. Is this something you're still hoping to get to? Um, no, I can't, I can't now. Um, I have, um, <laughs> this is really going to take this downbeat again. Uh, one of my, um, uh, one of my children uh, has a chronic illness and, uh, that was diagnosed, uh, towards the end of last year. And he is, uh, my son and he's getting quite a uh, amazing world beating treatment for that at, uh, the children's hospital of Alberta here in Calgary. And I kind of feel again, based on what I read that the NHS under a conservative government can't quite match that level of healthcare. So yeah, so he is in the middle of what is a two-year treatment course um, of this uh, this particular chemical concoction, which he is uh, reacting to incredibly brilliantly well just now. So we don't want to we don't want to fuck with that by coming back. And then my uh, my youngest daughter went and ruined everything by. Um, like going behind our back and auditioning for a prestigious performing arts high school here in Calgary and got in. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we're going to give her a little, uh, a little go at that. Cause she's, uh, she's very much the, um, all singing, all dancing, um, Hamilton, the musical member of the family. So, uh, so yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's kind of 
it's good for my two youngest children if we stay here for at least another year, maybe two uh, permanently. So, uh, you know, that's just life. That's the way things change. You know, our, our initial reason for wanting to go back to the UK was based on family because COVID was killing people's elderly mothers and I didn't want my mum to be uh, one of them. And uh, at least not before I got the chance to, you know, to kind of be there with her. So, uh, and then, you know, family ends up being the reason that we will, uh, we will have to stay for, for a little while. But, you know, that's just, that's, that's life. That's how it goes. It's okay. And obviously, the speedy recovery to him as well. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, you mentioned, actually, when we last spoke to you, Robbie Williams, uh, were there any other like unexpected like reconnections or reunions, like any blast from the past? Um, not with any famous people, um, unfortunately. Uh, I kind of gave to open eye. After I got the email from Robbie Williams, I'm just like, well, this is going to be a landslide now. Tomorrow is going to be Zoe Ball. And that never happened. Um, so, uh, so that was a shame. But it was really nice. Like so, Someone like Richard Wilcox, senior re- researcher, associate producer for um, The Golden Era, shall we call it, series four, five, six, seven. It was great getting back in touch with him, even though he then used it as an opportunity to try and get me to appear on a podcast about the history of Lemmings for free, which I <laughs> politely declined. And um, so, <laughs> so... I'm assuming that's the game, Lemmings, as well, not the animal. Not the animal. I would do the animal for you. That's great. But no, it was... Uh, no, because Richard uh, has a production company who makes all kinds of projects about video games. And, um, and bless him, I love Richard. I love Richard Easter, but he was one of the hardest working members of the Games Master team. He really was incredible. When we came to like, you know, three, four days before a shoot, he he wouldn't leave the office. And um, but he he still is wonderfully naive. And then he started off the email. This is after we'd exchanged a couple of basically I I got in touch with a few people saying, listen, thank you so much for your contributions to the book. I just want to say that was great. And 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 you know, I in case I was too drunk to mention it at the time, I really value the work you did. So I did that to like Richard and uh, Steve Carsey from the first series and everything. So Richard Wilcox gets back to me. Oh no, it was great. It was great fun, blah, blah, blah. And then I get another email saying, Oh yeah, listen, um, um, I'm doing this, doing this podcast thing. Maybe it's even a TV thing. I don't know about lemmings. Um, they're paying me, but, there's no there's not any money to pay you will you do it and i'm like you've learned absolutely fuck all about negotiating over the years have you richard why are you even running a production company why are you involved <laughs> in any way at a decision making level <laughs> so so i said uh, no to that nothing against lemmings you know they're they're all right i wouldn't get too emotionally attached to them for obvious reasons but um <laughs> you know so so yeah so that was nice and um uh, and it's always nice to have an excuse to talk to Johnny Finch because he's, you know, the loveliest human being I've met in my entire life. And he uh, has got a much better memory than me. So I was in touch with him for a lot of the time during the book, just for stuff that I couldn't, I couldn't remember. You know, <laughs> I am actually really excited to read his contributions in the book because like you've, um, you've sold them very well now and you sold them very well when we talked the first time. And I've just like, I I can't wait to hear what this guy has to say. You know, yeah. it's it's because uh, I don't think I've really seen much of him saying anything about it, like anywhere else. I don't know how much he has or hasn't spoken about it. No, the the only time I could think of that she spoke about it was with our um, uh, legendary, horribly unkind Edge interview we did when we were publicising when Games Attack, where we we just said, I mean, well, I say we, it was just me said the most disgraceful things about Dave Perry that was really, really bad and I'm really not proud of. 
and that was about the only time Johnny ever spoke about anything to do with me uh, in in public until this book. So moving on from the Kickstarter and moving towards Series 2, or specifically the tail end of Series 2, it's wrapped up shooting, the game's rig is no more. How far into preparation for Series 3 did you realise that you weren't aligned with the direction the show was taking? It was interesting because I was so upset by Series 2, and and I know it might seem like a horrible kind of vain thing, but I was so upset by how I looked in Series 2. And it's it's all very well for people to say, oh, yeah, but it you know, it, it, it fit the world building and everything, and it was part of the narrative, and that's fine. But it's okay for a director to have that vision, but he's not the one that appears on television. No one will see Cameron McAllister, oh, yeah, that's that guy with the red jacket from Series 2. No, but when you're someone like me who, and don't get me wrong, I loved video games, but I also love music. I also love movies. I wanted to do other things, and I feel that when you're on a, a TV show dressed like a like a butlin's red coat it really hampers that you know any any chance i i felt i had at that point of moving into anything that you know that was different was completely buggered by it so i felt i had to leave if i had to have any chance of doing that so that was going through my mind throughout series two actually while the filming of series two was happening and that's why i think the uh the first half of series two again i'm i'm quite quite bad as a presenter because I'm I'm just so I'm not really playing myself in series one and series two I'm actually playing Cameron McAllister a lot of the book kind of goes into detail about there's quite a lot of psychological stuff that my character is Cameron McAllister in series one and series two the second half of series two the second batch of filming when I decided in my own head right you know what, I think I'm going to leave this show. You can tell there's a little bit of a change in my presenting. I'm a little bit more cutting and um, so, yeah, so I was thinking about that. And then there was the McDonald's thing, which obviously people know I wasn't happy about. And at the same time, there was something like for, uh, an I don't know, about a 14-month period from the first transmission of the first episode of Series 1, I had like 10 days off in 14 months. I was just doing every day. I was doing something, some tie-in, opening some store, endorsing this, doing something, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then Channel 4 said the contract they gave me for Series 3 after, because obviously Series 2 people made a lot of money. Not me, but Hewland and Channel 4 made untold riches from things like Games Master Live and the Games Master Club and everything like that. So that was great for them. So the contract they offered me for Series 3 was incredibly restrictive. And it said they had to... Um, say yes or no to any store I had to open, any product I had to endorse or anything like that. And I'm like, whoa, my agent, Tony Fox, was like, they can't do that. That's restrictions of trade. And and so he he was like, okay, if you want to do that, pay him this amount of money. And they were like, well, no, we don't have the money. So so there was those three things, really, um, kind of all meeting in a perfect storm. And it was also the decision kept getting put off and put off because I was so busy. and. I remember, um, I think a lot of time I was out the country. I was at ECTSs and everything when these decisions were being made. And I was absolutely kicking the arse out of it over in California, just getting absolutely hammered and being taken to the best restaurants by lovely uh, people from video games companies. So I wasn't really paying attention. It, re- it People cannot 
cannot really appreciate what an insane ride this was for a 22-year-old guy to suddenly be catapulted into that level of fame and money and being taken everywhere in limousines and being taken out to restaurants. And you just, you almost kind of don't want to make any decisions because you don't want it to stop. You're just trying to kind of hang on and make sense of it at the time. So I was leaving a lot of this up to my agent and then it came to the big decision and I was just like, you know what, fuck them. No, not doing it. Not interested in doing it. That's it. And yeah, so that was it. I, I know that the um, the the narrative over the years is I quit because of the McDonald's sponsorship, and I did, and it was, but you know, but it was one one of a few reasons. And and again, that's been interesting going back into the book because Jane Hewlin's version of it actually, as far as she's concerned, has nothing to do with McDonald's. Jane is like, no, no, it's because Channel Four were being shitty to Dominic about his contract. And I completely backed Dominic 100%, and it was a terrible contract, and our hands were tied, and I completely understand why he left. So it's interesting. You know, we all have our own view of kind of history. I, I always assumed that there was more to it, because, like, yeah, the narrative has always been it was McDonald's going into Series 3, so Dom left. And I was like, I've, I always thought there was more to it because McDonald's is still a sponsor on Series 4. Yeah, but the problem was, was that contract they signed for Series 3 was a two-year contract. That's, yeah, and then so when it came to me coming back, and they were like, you know, and, and we we sorted out lots of other things I was unhappy with. And they were like, okay, here's the here's the problem. McDonald's still have to sponsor it because they signed up for two series. Now we can go to court and we get them to drop it, but McDonald's will not drop it. Um, Channel Four will not go to war against McDonald's. It will have to be something we start, you start. How much money have you got? And at that point in time, boys, I didn't really want to um, uh, to take McDonald's to court. <laughs> I didn't feel I quite had the same money that they had. So it was like, okay, I've, I've said in print that I, I hate the company. I'm completely fundamentally opposed to everything they stand for. I'm still going to say it in print. So if they still want to throw tons of money at the show to be presented by someone who said he's completely opposed to everything they stand for, then... You know, fair enough. I can I can live with that. It's a morally gray area, but I can live with that. And also, the fact was, if I did not come back, the show was going to be cancelled. That was it. You wouldn't have had anything else, guys. You would have. So I took a fucking bullet for the team. I did it for you guys, <laughs> Luke, Ash, all you people listening. We appreciate it. I did it for you. I was force fed that burger, and I swallowed it whole for you. Because we, we talked about the, the McDonald's thing back in series two, because you had a global gladiators challenge on right. that. And like we, we talked about the McDonald's thing then. And I was like, God, I mean, Don must have hated doing this because he's always been so opposed to the company. And then I found a Games World episode that you did like, yeah. in the review section of that, where you reviewed global gladiators. Yeah. And you were so scathing of it. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't this, it wasn't all of a sudden the series three thing. He's always hated this yeah. company. I think it's just, it's criminal. It's not a game, it's a walking ad. Uh, there are so many McDonald's signs all over the place. It's just the complete product placement. I think it's outrageous that this could be released as a game. And uh, please, please, if you have one protest march this year, make it about this game. I'm going to give it a big fat ozone friendly zero. I, I know it's terribly wishy washy liberal of me, but uh, this game is sick. It's Listen, it's, it's quite possible that in Series 2, I would have said things that were less than complimentary about that game, but they would have been cut out. Such was the lack of control that I had, you know, over that. And also because of the problems that I think series uh, series two has is that there's just way too much stuff in series two. Again, there's there's a lot of things in that that is a bit messy because we just you know consultation zone reviews, challenges, massive crane shots, walk downs, all of that into like a twenty two and a half minutes, twenty three and a half minutes. So it's um 
I, I, again, what I, this is what was so bad looking back at the, um, like I said, one of the few bits of series two I did look back at for doing the book was the Take That Challenge when we were, you know, getting Robbie to do the intro. And it's just, it's scandalous how little time is spent on that chat with Take That. It's like the biggest name we could have got that series, arguably the biggest name we ever had in any series. And it's just like one question down the line, boom, that's it. And at the end, what a waste. What a, what an absolute waste. And I'm so pleased that that when we finally, finally jettisoned the consultation zone, and I'm sorry, guys, because I know it gives you the title of your thing, but my God, I hated that. Um, but when we finally jettisoned it, we actually had time to do more funny stuff with guests on on the show, and I think the show was better was better for that. It's funny that you say that about series two guests as well, because I mean, we've just wrapped up series three and that because they have like four challenges, sometimes five challenges and the review zone and a feature and the consultation zone. There are times where the interview with the celebrity is literally just like, here's Chris Akabusi, what game are you playing? James Pond, off you go. And like, there's absolutely, there's no time dedicated to it whatsoever. I, I mean, I've said to Ash several times, there's almost no point to the celebrity challenges in this series. Well, see, again, that's an interesting point because maybe, maybe in the bits that were left on the cutting room floor, Dexter Fletcher revealed himself to be an interviewer of David Frost levels. Maybe there was mm -hmm. all kinds of fantastic, funny questions and interesting questions that we just weren't allowed to see. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So once you decided not to go back and you started to move on to other things, to look around at other projects, did you have any reservations or regret about walking away? Did you wake up one morning after you'd made the decision and go, shit, what did I do? Not, not initially, because again, I was still, because one of the reasons I left was because they were restricting the work that I could do outside of it. I was suddenly able to do all that work. And I was so busy opening more video game stores, endorsing products, all that kind of thing that I, I didn't really, it, it wasn't like I'd left the games industry. It wasn't like I'd really left, you know, I was still, uh, you know, the highest profile person in terms of TV and video games, even though I wasn't actually on TV and video games at the time. So I didn't really miss that from a financial point of view. I, um, from a kind of like a career standpoint or kind of, you know, creatively fulfilling point of view, I didn't miss it because that was when, uh, you know, when I, I mean, sports call at BBC Radio 5 Live was taking up all my time. And again, to to be working for the BBC aged 22, 23, it's just a dream. I mean, it's, I know that obviously this, you know, it's a very different BBC now, but back then it was just like absolutely ridiculously overfunded creative wonderland full of immensely talented people. And I was like, so excited to kind of go to work at Five Live and walk past famous footballers all the time. It was incredible. Uh, so, I mean, I was a bit upset, obviously, when I watched the first episode. And I remember I was watching that in a hotel room somewhere as I was about, I was opening some shop and I, and I knew it's fun. Actually, the funny story is that, um, and I don't want to spoil all this, but it's a shame because I know I, I would imagine most people listening have bought the books. So I don't want to reveal everything in the book, but, um, I found out Dexter was presenting it. I just got off a plane, I think from, it was either from Thailand or from, uh, Los Angeles. That was my kind of bizarre life at the time. And so I went straight to, hosting Radio One Roadshow because I was uh, I did the video game reviews for Steve Wright's show at the time. And I remember it was Richard Easter from the Steve Wright Posse picked me up. And he's like, oh, you know, they've got Dexter Fletcher to do Guest Master. And I'm like, oh, shit. And he said, which means I said, he's fucking cool. 
I said, <laughs> I really, I like that guy. The Rachel Papers, one of my favorite uh, uh, Martin Amos books, he was in that. I was like, no, he's cool. I said, fuck. He's a really fucking cool, good-looking guy. Shit. And so that was my first reaction. And then I went off and um, and was nearly killed, murdered by Mr. Blobby at that Radio 1 Roadshow. The full details are in the book. And uh, so that was a surreal day. But then when I, when I first saw that first show and I was like, okay, I, I didn't wish it any ill will because, like I say, I thought I was getting all my stuff. I had this new avenue career-wise, you know, at BBC. And then that first link when he said, you know, this guy's burnt out on level two and i just thought you fucking shitbags that was completely unnecessary i have not slagged off the show i don't think i've slagged off the show anyway i might have slagged off the disagreements but i i you know haven't said anything like i hope the show's rubbish and i thought to do that was um was incredibly unnecessary and very stupid because from that point on i was like okay i hope the show fucking dies. You deserve it. You don't deserve the show to work, people. And I also decided then I'm adding a zero onto my fee when they asked me back. And I actually thought, I thought in my naivety, fucking Dexter Fletcher, what a wanker. For, and then, of course, there was nothing to do with it. Nobody still admits, and maybe you guys have had someone admit it, but to me, nobody's ever admitted writing that line. Nobody's come out ah. and said, I wrote that line for Dexter. Yeah, we've never heard. No, not not heard from anyone anything about who would write that line because we'll we'll, we'll talk a bit about series three in a bit. But Dexter was a hired gun; he was yeah. there to do what he was told and say the words he was told yeah. and wear the really. I mean, the red jacket I know was a big issue, but the jumpsuit that would have been an interesting look. I'm, I don't know. I like the look. I mean, again, it might not have been so good for me with my little round glasses and everything, but I thought I thought Dexter looked cool. I thought he really f- suited it. I thought he looked great in the background. I thought the set was great. I thought his kind of character, his just his presence, his charisma, I thought was fantastic. But it was just as soon as he said that line, I'm like, fuck you. I never watched another bit of the show. And apparently, I hear, it wasn't that good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There was one other tie to Games Master that you had that also ended, I guess, a little abruptly, which is your big purple column that you wrote for Games yeah. Master magazine. I was wondering, how did things end with Games Master magazine? Was there any tensions there or was it just a case of I'm done with the show, so bye, lads, I'm off? Oh, it was just that there wasn't a choice. I had, you know, they had to, they were going to get, I think they were talking about Dexter maybe doing a column at one point. I mean, obviously I couldn't do the column if I wasn't present, uh, presenting the show. So there wasn't any, no, no, it was never any any tension between me and the editorial team. I mean, Jim Douglas, the editor, was was a really close friend of mine at the time. No, it was, it was just accepted that that was it. So that was fine. I, I didn't have a problem with that. You know, I mean, it was, um, I mean, I, I wasn't going to win any Pulitzer Prizes for that column. Let's face it. You know, it was fun, but. You know. It was interesting because there was like a two-part interview with Dexter in there and it did towards the end mention. It was like, yeah, I'm going to start my own column in a couple of months and I'm going to be talking about my mates and what games we play. And it never happened. <laughs> it never appeared. Never appeared. We were there every month looking at the magazine and be like, is it this month? Nope, not this month either. <laughs> and also before, like obviously we heard about some of the stuff that's going to be in the book and about Series 3, we kind of got an inkling of how crazy things were by the fact that they used to do the same as they did for your first two series when there was the magazine, which is uh, they would say, what's on the month's coming episodes, yes. the celebrities. Yeah. And there were entire episodes listed for series three that never happened. Is that true? Oh, yeah. yeah. 
like the the, uh, the team championships there was like a whole episode dedicated to the teams and like the auditions phase yeah and it just never happened never materialized Paul Whitehouse recorded a celebrity challenge that never got aired. It was even advertised on That's, Channel 4. Yes, I heard that. Yeah. That's funny. Great, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Love it. Serves them right. Shit bags, saying I'd burnt out. <laughs> Fuck them. Totally unnecessary. The only reason I wondered if there was any bad blood is looking back, occasionally your other projects did get mentioned in like the news section. Project with a very small P, that one. <laughs> Exclusive news: Dominic Diamonds did, did a video about Bubsy Bobcat. How to get better, Bubsy Bobcat? Actually, what was good about that was I did get to hang out with Danny Curley, who I absolutely love, and we had him on the show. Obviously, um, I think the only person who ever appeared more times on the show than Danny Curley was Martin Mathers. Actually, and Danny is—I I still keep in touch with with Dan to this day. He is just one of life's absolutely incredible people. He fucking mental, brilliant guy brilliant guy we were actually going to talk to him but we were literally set to kind of get something arranged to talk to him just as 2020 started to actually really kick in yeah and we we actually stopped recording for almost two months right because we thought it would blow over and we had like over two months worth of episodes in the can yeah and we were just like it's fine yeah. It's fine. Herd, once the herd yeah. immunity kicks in, we'll be okay. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, because we kept thinking, like, because we because we record from like the studio that I work in. And I was like, we'll be back in that studio before we know it. It'll be all grand. Yeah. We won't have to do any of this remote recording stuff. Lo and behold, all of series two basically was remote, and all of series three has done been done remotely now. <laughs> so, regarding series three, obviously you've already said a little bit of what you thought about Dexter then. How do you feel about him now, both in the position he was in at that time? And also, I mean, what do you think of him as a film director? Because obviously his career has gone on to entirely new directions. Knowing what I know now about how much that reaction to that series affected Dexter Fletcher, uh, I think it's really, it makes me feel almost sick. I know that mentally it really, really hurt him. Because again, it's a very it's a very public level of humiliation, and sadly for Dexter, because they invented this thing called the internet and online comments, you never escape that. They, whenever anybody posts anything about Games Master, you can guarantee that one of two things is going to be mentioned within the first five comments. Oh, remember that series with Dexter Fletcher? Did it? It was shit, and. Oh, remember Dave Perry having a fit on Mario 64? And that will be there for eternity. Even though Dexter Fletcher is, you know, is a extremely good Hollywood movie director, that will still be there. In the same way that it, it doesn't matter what I go on to do, there's a certain type of person who will bring up the fact I did a documentary about getting crucified in the Philippines. So you do these things and that's that's it now. It never, ever leaves you. So I think that's terrible. And I, I think that's a great shame. And people who know Dexter better, and they say this in the book, say, you know, it took him a while. There was serious knock-on effects from that forum, and it took him a while to dig himself out of of that mental bad space he was in, which is um, which is a real shame, especially looking back now and knowing, A, that, you know, there was nothing he could do about the absolute carnage behind the scenes, and that he didn't even come up with that line about me being burnt out. So, uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a real shame. I think, it, I mean, you know... I think he did as good as he possibly could have. And I think when people, I mean, I was quite surprised coming from the point of complete ignorance of that series to see how many people defend Dexter in the book. 
and that he was a great person to work with. He was a really nice guy with everyone. He um, was really enthusiastic. He was thoroughly professional. He was extremely hardworking. And it was just that it was the Keystone fucking cops making that show behind the scenes. A whole load of people who were completely, not, again, over-promoted. And in contrast to Series 4, there wasn't anybody on that show from series two this is the problem the producer had gone the director cameron mcallister he just did the titles the presenter had gone that those three the researchers had gone they were all gone every single person doing that show was doing it for the first time and doing a job that was a little bit beyond what they'd done before and that was a recipe for disaster when we first started doing this podcast, we had a lot of people messages being like, oh, lads, you're going to give up when you get to series three, because it's absolutely like it's this that, and the other. And there was almost like this sort of like impending doom almost of like people being like, ah, when you get to series three. I think one of the lovely things that we've had from series three, and we've just finished our wrap up episode on it, is all of the listener feedback that we've had have all said Dexter did nothing wrong. Yeah, good. That's good nothing on this show that was bad in series three was dexter's fault if anything dave perry becomes the villain of series three uh in our <laughs> in our audience feedback because of the things that he said on commentary he became the villain the, yeah. the only thing the only thing dexter does do wrong for me and i only know that because it's it was clips we used of it later on in later series is and it's a it's a very easy mistake to make a lot of people do it, especially when you're new to presenting is when you ask someone a question and they give the answer you just repeat the answer and he does that oh, yeah. a lot so what are you, you get here today to play? Super Bowl man, Super Bowl man. You nervous? Yes, yes. You know, and you'll notice he'll 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 do a lot of that. And I think we actually ripped the piss out of him in in a future episode for that, which probably wasn't very kind of us to do either. <laughs> Shits, we are. I mean, I'll be honest. I I kind of saw him doing that, and I'm like, yeah, I've done that. Oh yeah, because it's it's the extra the time it takes to repeat what they just said to you. It gives you time to think of what it is you're going to say next. You're exactly right. That's exactly why people do it. When in fact, people um, need to know that they, you need to live in the silences more. Don't be afraid of them. Just wait. Stop. It gives the listener more time to process things and then talk. You can always cut a silence. You could, you know, yeah. if you're editing, you can always cut around it. That's true. Because obviously, like, Dexter is not in the book, and he doesn't really talk about Games Master, but when we actually came to do the wrap-up episode, I found an interview he did with The Sun around the time of Rocketman coming out. Now, I had not seen this before because it was The Sun, yeah. you know, and I tend to steer clear of the red tops for various mm -hmm. sociological reasons, but he did actually talk about Games Master in it and where he was at at the time and I think in addition to what you've just said about the pressure he felt and the reaction and how it got to him, he basically says in the interview that he took the Games Master job to fund his drug habit. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't want to bring that in, but... No, yeah. we, we did talk about it, but we talked about it very sympathetically because, you know... You know, I'm a person with an addictive personality. I can understand the pressures that can come there. And well, obviously, it's no it's no secret to anybody. You know, I have had similar problems myself. You know, yeah. so I'm very sympathetic to that. Yeah, I was glad to read the interview, and it just gave me this. Other than the reaction he got when he did it, it just gave me this whole understanding of why you know he wouldn't want to revisit that period of his life as well, because obviously he got clean and he got sorted and Why the hell didn't Jack Templeton have that interview in the book? I take back everything I said about him as an editor. Fucking hell, Jack <laughs> Probably because it would have involved talking to the sun. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. At last, this is what you game fans wanted, double value games. With Double Value Games, you get two classic games packaged together in one brilliant pack at an unbelievably low price. There's 13 kicking packs with 26 fabulous Sega games on Mega Drive, Master System and Game Gear. With two great games in each pack, you've got to be the winner. Double the value, double the fun. It's like the greatest hits of Sega. You're coming back to the show. Was yeah. Series 3 still being broadcast when you were having these conversations? Yes. Yes, it was because um, things started to happen with that at ECTS, which would have been um, January. Not ECTS, sorry. E3, whatever. And uh, that would have been in January. And I remember I was... Who was I covering it for? I can't remember. I was covering it for someone and I was over there in LA and I was playing a PC game called Virtual Valerie which was, uh, I think, the first hardcore pornographic uh, video game. And I was with my mate Ginger, the legendary Ginger from uh, Virgin Games. And I was literally sliding a um, sex toy in and out of Valerie as part of the game. And she was, the character was moaning. And uh, this voice said, oh, what are you playing here, Dominic? And I looked up and it was fucking Jane Hewland. And I hadn't spoken to her since since the start of Series 3. And suddenly here we are in Los Angeles. And I am playing a hardcore porn game, literally dragging a dildo in and out of someone. And I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm reviewing this for, for a magazine. And she's like, and Jane is just so cool. Jane's like, well, this is interesting. So, so let me have a look. What else can you do? And, if, and so I actually think that was a great... um that really uh, was an icebreaker for us. And I 
I'm not sure that we would have even had the discussion about coming back if that moment hadn't happened. So again, you you owe series four, five, six, and seven all to the makers of of a horrible CD <laughs> pornographic game on the PC. And I think after that, I um I we didn't even mention the show, but it was like there was an almost I could just tell how with how relaxed we were in each other's company that she knew and I knew that we were going to start talking again. So lines of communication were opened between them and and my agent. And again, it was interesting because I didn't, I still didn't want to come back. I had, um, (laughs) I had this thing I was doing and uh, myself myself and my friend, um, David Young, who went on to become a massive, massive TV light entertainment producer in the UK. We had this uh, comedy show. We did a pilot for Hattrick Television. Uh, David had started working for them as an unpaid intern and worked his way up. And it was called Trash TV. And it was me uh, basically behind the desk, topical gags, and introducing lots of comedy sketches, including sketches done by the likes of David Walliams, um, Richard Osman, uh, I think uh, Miller and Armstrong. I think they might have done one as well. But like quite a lot of people who were just on the up and we did the pilot for it, and Janet Street Porter at the BBC loved it. And we were this, this close to getting it commissioned. It just had to be signed off by the head of BBC Two. And then the head of BBC Two left. I can't remember who it was, and we thought Janet Street Porter was going to get the job, and it was going to be a shoe in, and that was it. I was like, great, I was going to get my comedy show on the BBC. Boom, that was it. I was going to be absolutely made set for life. And then Janet Street Porter didn't get the job. A guy called Michael Jackson got it. Not that Michael Jackson. And um, we uh, we went for a meeting about the pilot. And A, he didn't really like it. He wasn't a man with a great sense of humor. And I also, um, I broke his fucking table um, in the meeting. <laughs> I lent it this expensive and I lent on it and I broke it. And I'm convinced that that's why we didn't get that show commission. That, I mean, we spent, you know, a great deal of the year, I I wasn't doing games now, so was spent on that just so many months and months of writing and rewriting and casting and honing. And it was absolutely heartbreaking and it would have changed my life and it didn't get picked up. And that was at the time when my agent said, look, you know, they've been back in touch. And I remember at the moment, at that time, when it wasn't commissioned, I was like, shit, what am I going to do for money now? And then this show Swat or What came along. Um, and it was a really nice team. It was a great team behind it. I love working with them, but it was like a kids' school quiz tea time thing filmed in Norwich, I think. And I remember sitting there going, fuck, you were supposed to be doing a fucking 9 p.m. Friday night BBC Two comedy show, and now you're doing an ITV regional school quiz show. <sighs> Got to go back to the fucking video games, guys. <laughs> Got to go back. Gotta go back to the show. And so, yeah, so it all kind of worked out well for everyone. I think at the time I, I was going like, like, like shit. I don't know what I'm going to do now. And luckily, you know, they wanted me back. And, you know, like I said before, it was uh, the only way that Channel 4 were going to let the show continue was if I came back. So it all worked out. So I'm going to guess like January was this sort of time then because like Dexter's closing speech of series three is him being like, oh, you know, I hope I'm going to come back. The, the team championships, I'm sure we're going to do this again. Like, Do you know when the decision was made that neither of those things were happening? Um, <laughs> I think, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's difficult because they film all that stuff in advance. I know that the actual final itself 
was a shit show of biblical proportions with um and again this all comes out in the book with one team won and then they had to reshoot something and it meant that another team actually won instead and and the the um the mother of the kids were going to sue channel four and it was getting into a horrible legal thing so i think um jane hewland would definitely have decided at that point that none of those people were going to be working on the show again <laughs> i'm pretty sure um so but i would yeah i i think when dexter they probably wouldn't have made the decision then. I don't think they would have let Dexter, you know, hang himself on that kind of comment. But Jen, inside her own head, would have definitely known. If not, then, I mean, I think she probably knew before then. That's so interesting as well, because like we referenced this in the Series 3 wrap-up. It's the Series 5 you were talking about. You're like, you're doing like a bit of a retrospective. It's the Christmas special, and you're like yeah. looking back at previous series. And in that, you mentioned, oh, Eagle Eye viewers will notice that the final of the team championships is a complete balls up and the team that go out are really upset about it. Right. And I was like, me and Ash were looking online. I was like, I can't find anything. But we're actually interviewing one of the runners up tomorrow. Oh, interesting. From the Humberside Hawks. So I'm actually, I'm now really like curious to get his side of things and be like yeah. what it was like on that day. Yeah. Well, and because this was all done, because um, uh, Mike Miller, the commissioning editor for Channel 4, he was the one that presented the prize. So this was all That's done it, yeah. under his gaze. So it really was, I think, even if Jane hadn't decided, I'm sure Mike Miller had decided at that point, no way am I bringing this stuff back. No way. <laughs> and then Mike Miller went to the BBC and completely bolstered up football. Did he, did he go to the BBC, Mike, in the end? Yeah, he went oh. to the BBC and he lost the broadcast rights. Lost some UEFA. Yeah, he lost the UEFA for the BBC. Did he? <laughs> and apparently misspent BBC funds by like flying over to see the Super Bowl in America at a point when the BBC had no interest Brilliant. in showing the Super Bowl. Yeah, he left Channel 4 and then he was chased out of the BBC. He's a Canadian. What can I say? So, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he actually says a lot of really interesting stuff in the book. I'm very, I'm very pleased. Oh, he's Mike, in the book? Yeah, yeah. Mike Miller contributes to the book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and um, I, you know, I'm sorry for what he obviously did to the BBC, but I have to say that, again, without his um, his bravery and vision, Gaze Master wouldn't have appeared because he was very much of a mind that he had to bring new and interesting stuff to Channel 4 because they weren't going to be able to get, you know, football rights and rugby rights and whatever. So it was things like Kabaddi that he was looking at kind of, you know, niche interesting things. And, uh, and he got Jane's idea that video games could be a sport. And obviously, you know, where we are today, hello, esports, you know, so he was without him, it wouldn't have been, it would never have been commissioned. So, you know, I have, we owe him a lot as well. It was kind of hilarious when he did turn up at the end of series three, because for reasons known only to himself, he's wearing army camo fatigues. They made him do that. Yeah. Oh, they did. Oh, cool. That's, that's good to know <laughs> yeah. because I was looking at him and going, are you trying to fit in? Did you see the jumpsuit and think and think? Oh, I'm going to dress like um, I just came from Camden as well. That will do. I think that was all part of the directorial vision. <laughs> so you talk to Jane. You uh, kind of like broke the ice over an interesting video game, yeah. which I had completely forgotten about Virtual Valerie until yeah. you mentioned it, Classic. and I've now just been oh, I've been hitting all sorts of memories. But other than adding a zero to the end of the number. What were your other big requirements for coming back? Oh, complete control. <laughs> complete control over everything, basically. Um, that was it. Nobody tells me what to wear. Uh, number one, absolutely number one. And that, um, that, yeah, no decisions get made about the show without me, you know, signing off on them. 
So again, that's how, you know, I kind of say sorry about Series 4. I have to take some blame for that. I mean, obviously it was important that I like the people, but again, I, that was just fortuitous. That was just lucky. I didn't, I didn't pick the producer, um, you know, or the director. It was just one of those serendipitous things that I, I mean, I just, I remember so clearly walking into Hewland um, and meeting Johnny Finch for the first time. And it was, it, it was the only time that, I mean, I see it now. I see it like a movie. And the only thing in my life that I see with such cinematic quality is when I met my wife for the first time. And that lets you know how special Johnny Finch is to me. And it was, he was on the other side. I walked into the shield office and this guy walks up. He's kind of a, a tall, a very thin guy, just, just a lot of nervous energy in his hands, looking like Jesus Christ. He just had this wonderful hair and this beard and he was Jesus. And then he started speaking to me and he was just, I mean, he was really posh. And as much as I slag off posh people, I do feel much safer when they're in charge of things. You know, whether that's a TV series or flying a plane that you're a passenger in, uh, everyone feels more calm with a posh voice as a pilot. And, but he just used lovely words and beautiful language and this incredible smile. And I fell in love. I mean, I genuinely fell in love with him. So, uh, so that was, that was really lucky and fortunate. Steve Wright, the director was complete opposite, um, was very butch and macho and just cool. He was an ex-male model. Um, and he was just cool. And there's a lot of stuff in the book about cool and games master about how it succeeded because Jane Hewlin was determined to not make it cool. Cameron McAllister was determined to not make it cool and how it became really cool by being not cool. But my biggest problem was I was obsessed with being cool. Uh, so, so there's a lot of the cool is, like, is an interesting theme in the, in the whole book. Um, and then, um, and then when I met that, the, I mean, it was the, the rest of these guys, it was just like working with an indie band. I mean, uh, Nick Sadler, the, uh, the light and cameraman, Drogo Mitchie, just, Again, I think he was a model at some point as well. It was just, they were just like the coolest. It was like uh, indie take that. That whole team was like young, cool, indie take that. So I was very lucky that I really loved all of them. But yeah, it was just that I want complete control over stuff. Um, and the, it's funny, the, the Zero only really came in at the very last stage. And I remember Tony Fox, my agent, phoning up and saying, okay, so here's the deal. Here's the final thing. Yep, you complete say over what you wear, complete say over what they do with the show, and, and, and you're allowed to do what you want outside of it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, uh, and here's the money. And I'm like, okay, that's great, excellent. And I'm just hanging up the phone. And then I suddenly remembered Dexter Fletcher burning the red jacket. And I went, do you know what, Tony? Fucking double it. And I hung up. <laughs> and Because I remembered that thing at the last minute about them saying this guy's burnt out. So I asked them to double the money. You talked about the, the, the set and everything. So like, was it your idea to like set it in hell? Right. This is interesting because... Yes, I think it was, but nobody remembers it that, right? Again, this one things they say people say in the book that nobody remembers who came up with hell. I remember because it was me, and I remember having an early chat with Jane Hewland um, and, and saying, I'm pretty sure it was just a call between Jane and I. Um, we're talking about the next series, blah, blah, blah. Where can we set it? And I said, Well, obviously, you got to set it in hell because you guys have got to be punished for the fucking sins of that last shit show. And and it was just a flippant throwaway line at the time, but I am sure that that was what started the whole thing because it makes brilliant, brilliant sense. It is a reboot, right? It's a it's a reboot of the whole show. 
and it, and it is purgatory. You know, we do have to pay for the fact that it was so bad. Series three, we have to go back to basics. We have to start right at the bottom, and you can't get lower than hell. So it makes it makes so much sense from that level. Also, you know, remember what we must remember all times. This is still ostensibly a kids' show. So how many kids shows get set in hell? None. So that's brilliant as well. And also, I was determined that I was going to be more me in series four, and I'm a completely different person, as is referenced by that from that very first line in episode one of series four. I'm Dominic Diamond, I'm back, and I'm grumpy. And that was my mission statement for the whole series. And so, again, we thought that this would fit, that that character would fit hell. Um, and actually, my character gets significantly lighter. Actually, as I don't know if people notice that as we go. And in series seven, when we're on a sunny desert island, I'm positively sunny. I smile more than any other series. And so, yeah, so that all kind of worked out. And I was determined to have a complete scorched earth policy to the Dominic Diamond that had ended up being on series two. And that's how I think I, I overcorrected that misteer. And I'm pretty fucking nasty to some of the kids in series four. Really bad. Uh, and a little bit too grumpy, I think, at times. And a little bit too, like, I'm fucked off. Uh, I think I played that hand a little bit too um, too big. Johnny Finch certainly thinks that. He comments on that in the book. But I just thought, you know what? You guys attempted to burn my character by holding up a red jacket. I'm going to burn my character in one fucking sentence in series four, and that's it. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's so I thought I thought hell was a great setting. I thought it worked really well for so many reasons. I was going to say one of my favourite lines in the very first episode is when you've got Frank Skinner out yeah. as your celebrity guest, and he makes a joke that I got and I laughed at, but I imagine at the time would have been lost on the entire audience as he goes, oh, it's very nice. It's like a gothic tis was. Yes. And I'm just like, that's that's going to land with the 13-year-olds. Uh... <laughs> it was brilliant. And again, that was what was, uh, I think that that was on one of my little hand-picked lists. Was, uh, I'd never really had any say on the guests before. Started having a bit more say on Series 4 and I really, really wanted to get Frank because he was, I wanted that as a big statement. At the time, he was as big a guest as Take That were in Series 2 because he had Fantasy Football League on the telly and he was just doing everything. And um, and because I'd worked with him, you know, as a as a fledgling stand-up comedian. And so I really wanted to... Um, and Frank had seen me doing some really bad stand-up comedy when I was like 20. <laughs> 20. Um, no, in fact, probably younger than that, about 18, 19, I would have been. And so it was almost like I wanted to say, hey, look, Frank. Have I done okay, Daddy? Have I comedy dad? Look, I've done okay, haven't I? So that was fantastic <laughs> to have Frank on for that first show. He came across really great. And also he yeah. seemed like he was having a genuine blast playing that Neo Geo football game. Yeah, he's just he's just I think um Frank Skinner is the greatest compare I ever saw doing stand-up comedy. He just um it just had a complete and utter incredible confidence, and that comes from doing thousands and thousands of hours of comparing live stand-up in really rough fucking pubs in Birmingham. And it just, <laughs> it gives you a Teflon coat. And I think that, um, I think stand-up comedy is a great training for everyone who wants to be a presenter because nothing can hurt as much a stand-up comedy when it goes badly and it makes you really react re really relax when you do everything else and i think by that stage frank just had this 
utter supreme level of confidence, which became his trademark. I think if you if you thought of what what kind of you know what's the one thing that you would say typifies Frank Skinner. You know, what's the number one aspect of his character? And you would just say, relaxed confidence. He's just so fucking laid back. No, he was he was great on that show. Most most guests were, to be honest. I think that was what was was great about what we could offer guests on Games Master was it was something that was just so different. And it was so obvious that we didn't take ourselves seriously and that the worst mistake a guest could do was taking themselves seriously. And I think that's how even at times when we had guests that I was less than keen on, because of the cheesy factor, things like gladiators and whatnot, they actually turn Mr. Motivator. They actually turn out to be great guests because they throw themselves into it with such fucking wanton abandon because they know the score. They know the whole point is don't take yourself too seriously on screen. We know that. And again, this is another theme in the book is that um, the from series four onwards, we are determined to rip the piss out of everything. America, games, guests, contestants, co-commentators and the biggest mistake you can make on this show from series four onwards is taking yourself seriously and one person did (laughs) and that's how we end up Mm. with super mario 64 should we just take turns to take ourselves seriously as we go through the rest of the seasons (laughs) because i'm not sure i'm not sure any one of us could just could keep it up the three seasons as it were. You mentioned that, like, you know, you're perhaps a bit harsh to some of the kids. And I'll be honest, we're right at the beginning of season four. We haven't really encountered that yet. We've mainly had some uh, comments on hairstyles and crisp packets, crisp flavours. Oh, yeah. 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 Which was nice, nice, relaxed banter. But one thing I notice is you seem much more relaxed on the microphone, but also the contestants compared particularly to series one, series two, where, you know, you were drawing blood from a stone. At yeah. times, just trying to get an answer. And I did wonder, during the audition process to get the kids on the show, did that change in Series 4? Did you suddenly start looking as kids, not just for playing games, but also can they string a sentence together with a microphone in front of them? Well, that that was one part of the show I, I was not involved in, was contestants, but I would assume that A, they did, um, but B, a lot of the reason that the contestants from Series 4 are a lot more comfortable on mic is that there are... <laughs> huge lift of the curtain here so many of them from um my mum's uh kids drama school i knew it <laughs> i bloody knew it um i, l- I knew l- it happened in season two a couple of times i think as well yeah one or two but we really started i mean that that's mostly what the audience is um in subsequent mm. series that's most of the kids that are in the cage and yeah so aside from you know stunt challenges you know Tetsujin and stuff like that. A lot of our challenges we did draw from my mum's drama kids because they're, you know, like nobody wants to watch someone clam up on TV and these kids are all very confident and they all love video games. You know, it's not it's not like this this genuinely was an attempt to find the greatest games player at Sonic the Hedgehog or something else. It was just a, a challenge that, you know, a, 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 something that was visually interesting to look at that had a degree of tension that was easy to follow and, you know, and had a contestant who offered a little bit as well. We weren't, you know, again, it's this thing I always say, Games Master succeeded where bad influence on those other shows didn't because we never set out to make a video game show. We set out to make an entertainment show using the most entertaining thing in the world, which was video games. And that was the absolute beginning, middle and end. That was our raison d'etre for any series that I was involved in especially, you know, series four onwards was 
does it entertain every level of it does it entertain so uh yeah so the kids are a little bit more chatty i think the also the atmosphere on that set was incredibly relaxed and also because from that point on a lot of times the audience was filmed separately so when the people kids are doing their challenges sometimes the um i mean you'll see the shot sometimes the shots quite cleverly framed them going in and out the cage so there's actually sometimes not that many people on set and uh, and certainly that becomes much more apparent in um series uh, the last series was the kind of biggest example of that when you have the kids on that little floating dock and then the challenges take place in the desert. I, I don't think the kids saw one challenge. I think that was a completely <laughs> and utterly separate shot. That was, um, and because uh, I don't even think you see and see by the time we come to series seven, I'm not even sure you ever see a guest coming in on the boat past the audience. <laughs> they don't think they were ever even there. Um, but yeah, it was a very relaxed atmosphere on set because a lot of the kids in the audience as well were kids from my mum's drama school, so I knew a lot of them. So yeah, it, it was a really nice vibe. So I think that made people feel a bit more relaxed. One last aspect of returning with season four is the purple column came back. I was yeah. I was overjoyed to open up the magazine and and there was your column in all its glory. Was that something that you wanted to do? Was it something you were asked to do? And how did you find going back to writing it? Because the Games Master magazine had changed quite a bit while you were gone. Like a lot of staff had changed. Yes, um, Jim Jim Douglas had left as editor. He'd uh, climbed the greasy pole of future publishing. But uh, Tim Tucker was editor then. He was another great guy. Um, we used him on Games Master. He was a lovely chap. And again, it was just, it was never really like anyone ever said, right, it's really important that your column fits what we're doing the rest of the magazine. Because it was just like, the rest of the magazine was proper video game journalists doing proper reviews and, and, and genuinely good stuff. And I was just saying, you know, oh, here's what happened when I got pissed with Manic Street Preachers. So it was never really that big a problem fitting in with the magazine at all. It was just there. Uh, I mean, I enjoy doing it. Like I say, I don't have any, you know, I, I don't have any uh, arrogant claims for the uh, the literary level of those columns but i think they were fun and they were good fun and the whole point was to just it's more about non-video game stuff really because i felt the video game stuff has been covered by the people in the mag much better than me and so it was like yes i've put down my top five games but it's more about me getting sunburnt in california and, and things like that so that that didn't really change and it was that was always fun to write with uh to write for and uh and yes and you know sorry to be a philistine but uh, very good money yeah i mean not at all yeah i haven't actually fully read the one from this issue because uh, we haven't reached it yet yeah. in the in the podcast. But I've just noticed that uh, I'm looking forward to it because there's a picture of you with a uh, quite a, ooh, hang on, yes, quite an impressive the, black eye. Yes, that's the time I nearly died surfing in California. And actually I ended up, I don't know if, I don't know if I got around to mentioning him in that piece, but I ended up recovering at, um, at Jazz Rignall's um, uh, Oceanside <laughs> apartment, actually, after that with him and his wife. <laughs> yes. Ah, that's so amazing. that's the point when he when he had left the UK. Yeah, but he and, was working for Virgin. Uh, he was working yeah. for Virgin in uh, California. And yeah, that was it. And that was actually the one time, having been, I, I mean, I was terrified of him in series one. I was so intimidated by him because of the the, the position that he held in the industry. And um and he was always, I mean, he was he was very good, but, you know, Neil West was always smiley and everything, but Julian was just a little bit, you know, less smiley. So I always thought he hated me. And it wasn't really until that time when I started hanging out with him in California and I kind of uh, got to know him a bit better and, uh, and had some great times. He's a oh, great guy, lovely guy. 
he's someone I'd definitely love for us to speak to. And maybe maybe that's an episode we do during series kind of four, because obviously he's gone and like he's moved over and he's changed his career because he just seems so miserable all the time on camera because <laughs> they keep making him review platform Pla- games. And he hates and he the platformers. Hates games. <laughs> if it's a mascot platformer, which was the style at the time, he absolutely <laughs> hates it. <laughs> But I like I liked that style he had with the reviews. Though it was good to get again. It's because you know, b- you know, bad influence and other things were always very up and energetic. And it was really good for us to have you know someone with a delivery like Julian pasting stuff. Or I mean, and we took that to the absolute extreme with um with uh with Frank O'Connor, who just uh you know the greatest voice and the most uh, laconic laid back delivery of anybody uh, ever. Mm. Yeah, he's really really great. The yeah. um, you you mentioned how like we're changing uh, Games Master from a video game show to like an entertainment show, and I think we might might mention in our last interview as well, like trying to make it more of a magazine style format, and you really see that in series four because it'll be like we introduced the challenge, but now we're going to the news, and yeah. the news then covers like oh here's like a, an American promo video that we've been sent, but we're just going to be like Mystery Science Theater three thousand and just talk yeah. over it and take the piss. Yeah, I think that. You know, when I come back and I want to take it more down the entertainment and and kind of comedy lines, it's really important that we don't lose the hardcore gamers at the same time who actually genuinely just want the latest stuff about video games. So I think that that's where the likes of Richard Wilcox and his team absolutely come out flying because with the news and because we tended to put it at the beginning of the show, it's like, it's almost like I saying to the gamers, relax, listen, I know it's, I know you're a bit scared. Dominic's been a little bit fucking weird now, a little bit more left field and you know, there's it's hell and there's dwarfs and whatnot, but it's okay. It's all right. There's still video games. Here's the latest bit of news. And then I think when, you know, when we have, when we were in, in competition with bad influence, even though, you know, we, I don't know, it's interesting. Violet Berlin, who contributed to the book, says, you know, that she never felt that she was in competition uh, with us. Um, I suppose in the same way that, you know, I'm not in competition with Usain Bolt, really, if we run 100 minutes. <laughs> so, no, no, I'm, no. I, I, I take great pains at the book to apologize about horrible things I said about bad influence because they were lovely people. But um, I always felt we were in competition because I always, and I think that helped us, and I think this is why I played it up, was that even though they came came along afterwards, they were the establishment show because they were ITV and we were Channel Four, and I and I'm guilty of really, really hammering that at times, and um, and so I I was quite firm with our researchers and with Richard Wilcox in that if I ever saw bad influence have a news piece about something before we did, I would be very, very angry. The whole point was we had to. We had to beat them on everything. And we were lucky that we had some great researchers there. And, you know, and I think that was when Martin Mather started working and, and, uh, and Ravi, uh, and, uh, and they were brilliant. But, I mean, again, that's Richard Wilcox. That's Richard Wilcox, you know, flying that plane and, and doing it absolutely brilliantly. So one just last bit to do with Series 4, and it's something that kind of came up in an interview you did for Games Master magazine before you came back. You were actually in America when you were interviewed. Yeah. And I believe it's also referenced a couple of times in the show. Okay. Danny Bear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did make a habit of absolutely gunning for her. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, um, she was a guest on Series 3 as well. Well, yes. And so, okay. And that, so there's, there's different reasons, right? Is that 
as most people know, so I got Guest Master because I auditioned for the ward, got to the last 12 and was judged to be not cool enough or trendy enough compared to the rest of them, so I didn't get the show. So uh, that really broke my heart because I was a massive fan of the ward. It was like there was a there was a bit of a sense of payback against the ward in general after that. And Danny Bear for me represented the worst excesses of the ward that I I felt I got in there and I was smart and I was funny, but I wasn't physically you know, attractive enough. Mm. And Danny Bear was the exact opposite. She was utterly bereft of any scratching of wit or intelligence. She was completely vacuous, um, did not deserve to have a job where she had to speak in any capacity, I felt. And, um, but was absolutely stunningly beautiful and just to be cool. So I thought that that, that was, she represented the worst excesses of the word and Channel 4 and that style of youth television, which I had been so desperate to kind of break into. Um, so it was it was very puerile and very unfair and nasty and vicious of me. But she also appeared on Series 3. And so that was the final thing, which is like, right. So it was also a dig at Series 3, as well mm. as a dig at Channel 4, as well as a dig at the word. And uh, and yeah, completely unfair. You know, I mean, I, I didn't know Danny Bear. She might actually read fucking... Shakespeare on her days off. I know nothing about her, and so it's terrible. I mean, I, listen, I was a I was a horrible person back then. I really was a absolutely horrible, nasty, vicious person. And again, I go into that a lot in the book, and um, and it's just I defy anybody to get that level of fame and wealth that young without becoming a monster. And all you have to do is throw alcohol and cocaine into the mix, and it, it really is. Um, yeah, it's it's. I, I wasn't I wasn't a good person, and I I fucked everything so badly. I mean, behind the scenes as well. At this time, you know, I wasn't seeing my family a lot, and uh, I'd split up with my girlfriend Mavami Moore, who was part of our kind of Bristol University gang as well, and she was always that kind of calming influence. So I was I was very out of control at this at this stage. You know, all it needed was for Kirk Ewing to come into my life after Games Master Live. Um, and, then, and then it was a recipe for absolute social carnage. I will say when Danny was on Series 3, um, it was a whack-a-mole challenge, wasn't it? If it I was, remember correctly. Yeah. Which, you know, it's not, so it's not, it's literally, she is there to promote whatever she's doing and because yeah. she's the hot flavour at the time. No one is doing Master Games playing at whack-a-mole. No. But they did unfortunately pair her up with a teenager that was every negative stereotype of like a 15, 16-year-old yeah. teenage boy of the 90s, greasy, kind of slightly bad-fitting jeans. Like the Harry Enfield characters, yeah. <laughs> Very yeah, much, yeah. But, but also genuinely seemed to think he had a chance with Danny Bear. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt, I just felt so bad for her because I'm just like, oh, this is uncomfortable oh, yeah. to watch. <laughs> that's, oh. that's as bad as me thinking I had a chance with Natalie and Bruglia on Series 4. <laughs> <laughs> We've always had the thing of on, our, on the podcast, we never punch down towards the kids, particularly yeah. Season 1 and 2 when they're very nervous about being on camera. Yeah. But... Oh, some of those kids in Series 3 made it really hard. Yeah, <laughs> they really did. I know, it's really... that. You know what? That was one of the few things in Series 1 that I was really pleased at was the uh, when we had the three contestants and they did really badly. And one of them was actually Dolat, this, uh, one of the rare females in Series 1 because she was actually one of our researchers. And I called them all Plank. Plank, Plank, Plank. That was the first time I ever kind of slammed it. I was really pleased with the few bits I like about series one in terms of my script. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, series series four, I, I think there's a time that times I'm a little bit too cutting. I think it's things like 
I slag a lot. You're right. I slag a lot of them off about hair. Obviously, that's because of my own insecurities about my own. And um, and there's also a lot of, of girlfriend chat. And I think a lot about people getting dumped by their girlfriends, which I, I think um, I, was, I mean, what I was that's the way that teenagers talk to each other. That's what it's all about. But I think that it's also it's also quite bad to have that part of your life exposed on national television and I, I would hate to think that there are some people who appeared on the show who then ended up getting ridiculed and even more horribly bullied as a result of me taking the piss out of them in series four and so you know we're all obviously much more aware of that kind of things as human beings and also me as a father that um, I would hate to think I had contributed to any kid being treated poorly at school as a result of a games master experience but I'm utterly convinced that some of them from series four did you know the kickstarter ended you put up your tweet that said that's it you're done no more talk about games master and effectively like this podcast unless you do others is it this is kind of the final word of the final word on games master comes in november when the book is out does that also apply to when games attack or house of plenty <laughs> night of plenty night of plenty <laughs> How, see, now you've just sunk, no. you've just sunk below Arch. No, no, no. You know what? I'm going to throw myself under the bus. Luke is reading from my notes, and I wrote House of Plenty. Looks back. Um, I'm the big enough man to admit when I make okay. a mistake. I, um, so, well, it was it was funny, and obviously you guys know this because I I emailed you it was after I did that little closing video um, at the end of the Kickstarter campaign and after the tweet, and and it was like that's it. And I think because I really. Um, the campaign was weird, and then it was very exciting. And then, and I say this in the book: I, I'm not very, not very comfortable with with fame. I never was. I never did it for that. I did it for money. I'm a working class kid from a poor background. I did it for money. Simple as that. I never liked being recognised. I hated it. It led to all kinds of, you know, mental health problems for me. Still does. That's one of the reasons why I gravitated towards radio. And um, that's what's been particularly brilliant about radio in Canada is that even though I've done some of the top-rated breakfast shows in the country here, if I shut my mouth, I don't get recognised. <laughs> the minute I open my mouth, it's like, hang on, Scottish accent. That's the only Scottish accent on the radio here. So uh, it was very uncomfortable feeling famous again for that four weeks. And and I make uh, um, I make a habit, and I always have. I try to, uh, I reply to every single person who commented or messaged on Twitter, every single one of them I got back to at least once. And there's, you know, I mean, literally there's over a thousand. And I, I so that, that took a long time. Between that and talking about myself, I felt very uncomfortable and I got quite ill. I actually got, um, I physically got quite ill. I, uh, um, I, it's again, bizarre way to take this. So I'm Scottish, which means that uh, we are 90% eczema. Uh, all Scottish people and my eczema that I was always bothered it flared up so bad at one point I actually looked like um, uh, Jeff Goldblum in the second half of the fly I mean it was just such a reaction to that level of of kind of fame and, and intensity and talking about myself I was really uncomfortable with it I, I was really like oh I just I just want this to end and I, and I got to the stage where I just said to so many people who were wanting to do podcast, I was just like, no, no more. I'm really sorry, guys. I just, I've, I've just had enough. So when we got to end, it was like, phew, okay, that's it. I can go back to obscurity again. And um, and then I was like, 
Oh, fuck. I promised Ash and Luke I'd go on their podcast. And I thought, of all the podcasts, I cannot cancel this. These are the guys who, along with Jack Templeton, have been the three people that have kept the sacred flame alight for the show all these years. I cannot not do the podcast. And I thought... But then again, I have said that's it. And it's like, oh, this is a fucking tricky one. And um, I think 90s Dominic would have just said, ah, fuck you guys. Um, but, um, but now the nicer, more considerate person, I was like, no, do you know what? And then I remember I emailed because I thought, oh, no, these guys must be going, oh, shit, has he just, has he just dropped us in it now? So that's how I emailed you and went, listen, guys, I have to say I will still do, do, your, do the under consultation podcast. Ash text me as soon as you put that tweet. I've got a text message about five minutes later. I mean, I go like, "Have you seen Dom's tweet?" And I was like, "No." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, oh!" And I messaged you back, being like, "Oh man, we were going to have that interview with him." And then, not like half an hour later, your email pinged in, and I was like, "No, it's cool. He's emailed us now. It's fine." And the worst thing was was that this was something I'd agreed to um, with you, Ash, but I was but I was still doing Twitch. So it like was like months. It was like a year, almost a year ago. It predated this whole thing, and I was like, "Oh no." You'd agree to it the first time you'd said you weren't going to do any more podcasts about Games Master. <laughs> that was how long ago it was. Um, so yeah, and then I thought, and then I think I said to you guys, I said, well, listen, let let's leave it at least leave it a few weeks so I can I can have some sense of of, of enthusiasm about talking about it. So I think it's actually it's perfect that um, that you know, yes, this is the last time I plan to talk about it. I mean, I, I think I'll post some when I when I come to do a sorted, um, you know, like a reward tier pledges and everything like that I'll, I'll certainly post some stuff and some of the limericks and things like that um and i've got always i'm going to post when i get the book in my hand because i mean that's going to be incredibly exciting i'm incredibly proud of it um but in terms of interviews and everything i know I, I, I think that's it i know that there are rumblings from publishers about given the success of it possible paperback versions oh, wow. of it i'm not Ooh. convinced how i feel about that because i think one of the things which is so great about this book is that it is posh it is a lovely beautiful big hardback thing um and so i'm not really sure but then again i've had so many messages of people you know who say oh i couldn't afford the book just now which is un i understand because of you know covid and stuff like that but it's the people who say to me and i must have had about 20 messages Oh, how did I not hear about your Kickstarter book until after it's finished? I'm like, where the fuck have you been? And people say, oh, I was such a massive fan of the show. I only just heard about the Kickstarter. Uh, fuck off. No, you weren't. You could not have been a big fan of the show and not heard about the Kickstarter project. So, um, you know, uh, so watch the space for that. And I expect, and again, I don't know where Channel 4 are in their um, current nefarious plans to reboot the series. But uh, I would imagine that if that ever um, comes to, you know, ever does get born, and, and I, whenever I think about it emerging, I think about the alien bursting forth from that guy's stomach. Um, if that ever does come forth, I expect I will be asked to talk about the show then, assuming I'm not involved, which I don't think I will be. So, um, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. As far as I'm concerned now, yes, that's, that's really. That is it. Not not because again, I'm like, you know, people have this misconception that I hate the show, that I resent, you know, the show in, in, in some ways because of at times when I've apparently not wanted to talk about it. And I don't. And I think that uh, I love the show and I think that comes across in the book. 
I think that it genuinely is incredibly moving to me to see how much it means to people and the messages that I got as a result of the book coming out. People genuinely saying it was, you know, my childhood was shit. I got bullied, but I love this little world I could escape into. Fucking hell. I mean, if you can do that with your life, then what an incredible achievement. You can't really do more than that. To actually, if we as human beings can enhance the life of one other human being in our lifespan, we've done a great thing. And I'm lucky that I've done it with a lot of people with like thousands and thousands and thousands, which is um, amazing, especially when you consider, I think a lot of it I was embarrassed about admitting how much the show meant to people because I didn't come up with a cure for cancer. I made knob gags. And so it's like, you know, I'm quite embarrassed if that meant so much, but then I realized that it's laughter and laughter is a place you go to when your life is shit. And we gave people that laughter and gave them that world. And that's something that I'm immensely proud of. But I feel I've answered with the book, every single question anybody could possibly have about that show. I may or may not leave this in, but I will say I was one of those kids that was bullied. Yeah, I can understand that. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that's really funny. No, 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 that's, no. No, no it's... Um, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to hear that. Bullying is horrible. But it was... It was um, there were a couple of things that I could bond with kids in, including some of the bullies. Video games. Yeah. And dirty humour. Yeah, yeah. Because if they were laughing at knob jokes, they weren't laughing at me. So that's where Games Master sat for me. Less so the Dexter Fletcher era, but that's where that's where your era sat. I find that I, I genuinely find that incredibly touching and moving. And I'm not setting up for a gag in any way, flipping out. I, I really do. I'm really I'm really pleased. I've, I feel quite I feel quite emotional about that. I'm really pleased that that was able to work for you. Although when Luke asked me to do the podcast the first time, I said no. <laughs> <laughs> Ungrateful little shit. <laughs> I don't know. That bombshell. <laughs> I was like, I was like, Ash is definitely going to be the person who wants to do this, and he's like, no. So I was like, oh crap! Oh, I'll go back to the why drawing so, board then. Why? Why not? This is interesting. And be completely honest, because you preferred bad influence. You were waiting for that gig to come along. <laughs> I was waiting till I could get a uh, complete set of Games World, which will never happen. <laughs> so, unless the stars align otherwise, this is. The final word on Games Master. The book in November is the final word on Games Master. Here on this podcast, what would you like your final word on Games Master to be? Um, I mean, there's the obvious one, isn't there? Pants. Because <laughs> that was like, it's, it's funny you say that because it's when I, I so when I was a kid, when like the, the pants thing was like the big part of Games Master, yeah. we used to say it so much at school. And our teachers used to get so mad at us <laughs> as Excellent. well because you're like, you can't say that. We were like, no, no, this is pants, miss. That's <laughs> brilliant. I feel, I feel bad because there's so many messages I got when I was writing the book was about, oh, I've just, uh, I've just placed and I've just bought this. Look forward to lots of mentions of the word pants in the book. I don't think there's many mentions of the word pants in the book. I suddenly feel that people are going to be like, well, you know what? I mean, this has taken us behind the scenes at a level that we've not heard about any other, you know, TV show before. And some of the behind the scenes things they got up to is just like Dionysian levels of excess. And some of the, the behind the scenes photography has never been seen. It's incredible. And this is a beautiful hardback bound edition. But he only said pants three times. Fuck it. I'm sending it back. So, um, yeah, maybe pants... Uh, should be my um, my last word. I will make pants 
my last word on this show pants <laughs> pants the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.